0: That should have come after me and before you, because now I've got to follow that. <laughs> That's why I did it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was great. It's great. Yeah, I'm glad you're all here this morning uh, with Thanksgiving coming up. Um, Trey asked me to say just a few words about giving thanks, so I'm going to share a few thoughts this morning. I'm going to start with a uh, reading from Psalm uh, 100. It's a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. there was a tragedy in Kenya. Uh, 60 people were on a bus going somewhere, and some radical militants uh, stopped the bus, pulled everybody off. Um, if you were the right nationality, you went to the the good side. If you weren't, uh, they asked them to recite a required verse from the Quran, and if you couldn't, uh, you get to you got to lay down in the dirt and get shot. Um, those people were probably Christians. Uh in that area either you're Christian or Muslim. You're one or the other and they were not Muslim. And um that is really hard to give thanks um to God for being a Christian in situations like that. Um but that's what we're called to do and uh we pray that um they're with him now. But uh we are called to give thanks in all situations cuz God is sovereign and uh, he knows everything. Um, and we don't, um, but we are, uh, thankful this morning that we're here and we're able to praise and worship without persecution, nothing close to that. And, uh, I'm sure that, uh, we're all thankful to God for his gifts, but we can't really imagine the magnitude of his gifts until any of us have been in a situation like that where we are really, really down and out, um, And have no hope. And uh, that's where we really find God. So I would just uh, ask this morning that uh, we would be thankful to God for the things that we can't even understand. That the innumerable, unimaginable gifts that we have just to be here in this place to worship him freely. Set aside the fact that we are absolutely the most filthy rich nation in the world. Um, We have freedoms here that others have died for. Uh, so we are, we are so thankful for that. <laughs> um, so, um, I'm going to keep this short. I uh, saw a little blurb on the web this week that said, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, and wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. We can all be thankful. That's, that's the knowledge part. But how we live out that thankfulness is the wisdom. We need to live a thankful life. Um, it's, it's great to say thank you. It's great to be thankful. But it's another thing to live a devoted, thankful life to a God that sent the son that he loved more than we can imagine to die for us. So um, if you join me in prayer this morning, Father, uh, we just, we don't know the bounds of your love. We cannot imagine how much you love us, but we know that you do. We know that you love us regardless of what we are, and we put our faith and our hope and our trust in you. And, Lord, we are so thankful for all the gifts, the ones we can see and hold and touch, and the ones we can't. So, Father, we just ask you to send your spirit to stir in us uh that that motivation to live out our thankfulness to you to just to share with others the good news that you have sent your son to die for them and us and and all that would have you in their hearts lord so uh, this week as we head toward thanksgiving we just ask you to to be with us to show that thankfulness to others in in ways that you would uh, you would lead us lord we just thank you for loving us for the uh the knowledge of salvation that we get to spend eternity with you, Lord. In your name, amen. 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 Well, howdy, folks. Hey,
1: good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point in time and uh, turn with me to the book of Amos. Uh, We're going to be ending our sermon series this morning. We've been in the midst of a series on the book of Amos. It's a minor prophet, kind of towards the end of your Old Testament. Uh, if you don't have uh, your own Bible, there's some Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. And if you don't have access to either of those, most of the text should be on the screen. Uh, we find ourselves today in Amos chapter 7, and uh, we're going to finish the book. So that means we're going to w- make our way through Amos chapter 7, 8, and 9. So you're going to need your text. We're going to go pretty quickly at a breakneck speed, uh, but I have faith that we can do it. So Amos chapter 7, 8, and 9 is where we're going to be. Uh, as you're... Uh, Flipping there, let's, uh, let's do this. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive right in. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the privilege of being here. We ask that through the power of your Spirit that you would help us to understand this text, what it meant for, for the people that you wrote it to many years ago, and what it means for us, because your Word is for us today. And so help us, we pray, to learn from this wonderful book of Amos. Uh, we ask it in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. So I want to ask you a quick question. I don't know if it's something that you've probably ever thought about. In fact, I would guess you probably haven't. Um, So here's the question. Uh, What is it, do you think, that preachers, that pastors like myself, have nightmares over? Just think about it for a second. What do you think I wake up in the middle of the night with a cold sweat and I uh, get up from my bed uh, panicked over? What kind of a nightmare would cause a a pastor or a preacher uh, to wake up in, in that way? Well, lots of things, but I want to share one specific bad dream that I had uh, just uh, just about a week ago. And uh, typically, I don't remember dreams. I don't know about you, uh, but this one uh, I remember because I was right in the midst of this uh, nightmarish kind of a dream when one of my kids cried out and woke me up. So I was startled from sleep. Therefore, I remembered the dream. And uh, so, what do pastors dream about? What are we afraid of happening? Well. Um, uh, in this particular dream, from what, from what I remember, um, I was at a church. Well, it's, I'm a pastor, so I was at a church, and uh, I walk in the church, and there's a large crowd, uh, lots of people in the church. My family is there, people I recognize, a lot of people that I don't recognize are there as well, and uh, I wasn't exactly sure why I was there. So I, re- I think I remember recalling, asking someone, hey, what's going on here? You know, why are there so many people in my church? This is wonderful. And uh, they said, well, didn't you know that so-and-so passed away? And I said, no, I didn't know that so-and-so passed away. And they said, yes, and you're doing the funeral. And I said, I'm doing the funeral? And they said, yes, and it's right now, today. Uh, And this is what pastors have nightmares over, is coming to church, finding out that someone died, and they're in charge of doing the funeral. And uh, what's worse, if I remember my, my dream, I didn't know the person. And so I remember being all worked up in my dream. I don't know this person. I'm, I'm supposed to right now on the spot do his or her funeral, and, and it just threw me into a tizzy. So if you, if you want to know what pastors freak out about, it's things like that. So word to the wise, if you're going to die, let me know, okay? <laughs> just let me know. And if you want to have a wedding, let me know, you know? Uh, don't, don't throw it on me, okay? Uh, that's what I, I have nightmares about. So I want to ask a second question that's kind of related what do you think three-year-old girls have nightmares about? You know what three-year-old girls have nightmares about? Uh, I don't know if you remember when you were a uh, three-year-old, or if you're a girl. Uh, maybe you have a daughter. Um, uh, uh, just a few days ago, my uh, my kid, two of my, two, my oldest kids are sick, and so they were taking a nap. Uh, they don't ever take naps, but they were sick, so they're laying on the couch and they're taking a nap, and uh, something startled uh, Piper. Piper. And I don't know what it was. Maybe somebody rang the doorbell or maybe it was Shelly or I don't know. Something kind of startled and stirred her from her sleep. And so she kind of was in this half dream state, you know, half not. And uh, I don't know the exact words. I should have asked my wife. But she said something, uh, something to the effect of, in a kind of a whiny voice, he's not going to let me watch another show because my daughter loves to watch TV. And she loves to watch cartoons, and she loves to watch it on the TV, and she loves to watch my phone, and apparently uh, she was having a nightmare to where he, someone, I don't know if it was me or someone else, was only going to let her watch one show, and she was beside herself, and then she went right back to bed. So uh, you know, I don't know what gives you nightmares, I don't know what kind of bad dreams you've been having lately, but the reason we're talking about dreams, and particularly bad dreams, is because as we finish up the book of Amos here in chapter 7, 8, and 9, uh, what we get is a series of five dreams. Uh, The Bible calls them visions. Sometimes uh, the prophets have visions or dreams while they're awake, and sometimes they're asleep. We don't really know with Amos, but he is going to have a series of five visions. If you take a look at the chart behind you, we've been making our way uh, through the book of Amos. And uh, we come to the last two sections of the book. Uh, first of all, the third section is called the results of judgment. And what we get is five dreams, five visions. And they're going to be bad dreams for the nation of Israel. That's who Amos has been writing to. He's been writing to God's people in the northern kingdom, the nation of Israel. And these five dreams, these five visions that God gives Amos to share with his people portray the coming results of, uh, of judgment that God has been predicting uh, and however, unlike our bad dreams, which usually almost never come true, right? They're, they're kind of nightmares and they never come true. But Amos's dreams for the nation of Israel, unfortunately, most of them are going to come true. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of work our way through this large section, uh, the results of judgment. We're going to work through these five visions. And then the book ends happily. Uh, eight and a half, nine chapters of Amos have been, have been kind of harsh. God has been disciplining his people. And yet there is still hope. And so the book ends in chapter 9, with verses 11 through 15, with the restoration, that is God's restoration of his people after judgment. So if you'll turn with me to Amos chapter 7, we're going to work our way through this rather quickly, and we're going to work our way through a set of five dreams, five visions that demonstrate the result of God's imminent judgment on the nation. Uh, The first vision starts in chapter 7, and it's through verses 1 through 3, and it's the vision of locusts. It's a vision of judgment by locusts. Let's read this together, starting in verse Verse 1 of chapter 7. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested. And just as the late crops were coming up, when they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive, how can Jacob survive? He is so small. So, verse 3, the Lord relented. This will not happen the Lord said. So this first vision is a simple one. If you take a look at the image behind you, um, this is a picture of the damage that locusts can do. Now, in our part of the world, as far as I know, uh, we're not real concerned about locusts. uh, But in that part of the world and at that time, if you had a swarm of locusts, it could be absolutely devastating to your harvest. And what the vision that God gives is, he says, this could be the judgment that I'm going to send upon my my people. It's going to, I, I could eliminate essentially a vast majority of the harvest, which would essentially lead to starvation. And what does Amos do? I love what Amos does. Like, like a man of God, like a prophet, he pleads with God, right? He intercedes for his, his people, and he says, God, um, we are so small, we, we, can't, we can't take this kind of a judgment. And so what does God do? God, in his mercy, says, okay, this will not be the judgment that I will bring, and he relents. So we've seen the first vision, It's of locusts. The second vision is a vision of fire in verses 4 through 6. Let's read that together. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. The sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up at the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, either. The Sovereign Lord says. And so the second vision is a vision of fire. Most likely, this is a picture of drought. Uh, Oftentimes, fire can be a picture of drought. And I don't know if... Here in central Illinois, you guys have ever had a drought, but where I'm from, uh, down in south Texas, uh, we, for several years, have been uh, in a really severe, severe uh, drought. And a drought could be just as devastating as locusts, essentially uh, killing off uh, harvest and food and leading to, uh, to lack of water, lack of food. As you see in the image behind, this is what, this is what it can do to a land, just to give you an idea. And so, uh, what does Amos do? Uh, in, in the same way, he pleads for his people. and He says, God, the nation is so small, we can't endure this kind of a harsh judgment. And so God, in his mercy, uh, relents and he says... I'm not going to do that. And when you look at that word, this idea of God relenting or changing his mind, it, it refers to someone turning away from an earlier decision because that person is deeply stirred by the appeal of another person. I've shared with you this story, so I'm going to be brief. In fifth grade, uh, I was in a program called DARE, D-A-R-E, and it had something to do with drugs. I don't know what it stands for, but it had something to do with staying away from drugs. And as you know, because you've probably heard me before, uh, in the fifth grade, we had a DARE officer, and he would. Come come to our class, and my fifth grade class was by far the worst fifth grade class uh, probably in the history of my middle school. Now, of course, I didn't have anything to do with that, but everyone else in the class was really bad. However, on this day, however, on this day, uh, I was the one who caused the scene. I had a friend, and he had a pen, and I've told you the story before, uh, and I, he was pretending to drop my pen down the, down the sink. We were in a lab, and so I thought, I'm going to be clever. I took his pen, and I bent You know, pins have little things that you clip. I bent it outwards, and then I hung his pin on the crossing of the sink. And I said, look, I'm going to drop your pin in the sink. And I dropped it, but of course it didn't go through because it was caught. And I thought it was so clever. Long story short, guess whose pin it was? It was the dare officer's pin. Do you think he liked that? No, it was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. He went berserko. He said, you guys are the worst class ever. I hate coming here. I'm never coming again. And literally, he stomped out of our classroom. And we were all stunned. And I was like, and, and not only that, he said, you, he pointed me out, it's your fault. And I was like, I didn't know it was your pen and all that stuff. Of course, it was everybody else, but I wasn't the bad guy. So, you know, um, you know, my classmates, they said, you have to go talk to him. I said, me, you have to go talk to him. It's your fault. So I was panicked and, you know, I'm the good kid. I don't get in trouble. So I went and found this dare officer in the hallway fuming over what was just, uh, again, just the tip of the iceberg of his experience, and I apologized, and I said, I did not know it was your pen, I, I would never have done it, if it was your pen, would you please come back to class? And do you know what he did? He came back to class. He calmed down, and he, he, he relented, and he stayed with our class for the rest of the year. And I think of that because that's what Amos is doing. He's, he's pleading, God, would you turn away from your decision to send this kind of judgment? And God, in his mercy, says, I will, I will not send this kind of a judgment, which leads us to our first lesson. We're going to see several lessons as we work our way through the text. And the first one is this, intercessory prayer is powerful. This is what we see Amos doing, right? He is pleading on behalf of other people before God. James 5, verse 16 tells us this. In the context of praying for other people, it says, "...the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective." And so Amos shows us this. James says, listen, if we are righteous people pursuing righteous and holy lives, then we need to be praying to God on behalf of other people. It's, it's powerful. It's effective. And so I want to ask you, who do you need to be praying for? Who is it that you, like Amos, need to be interceding for? Maybe it's a, it's a spouse. Maybe it's, maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a, another family member, a, a relative, or, or maybe a friend. Maybe it's someone who is sick and hurting and grieving over, over the, the death of a loved one. Maybe it's, maybe it's someone who's lost, someone who has not heard the, 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 the gospel message and they need to get saved. Whoever it is, this little first couple of visions show us that intercessory prayer, God listens, he responds, and it's, it's a powerful tool. So we've seen a couple visions, right? Let's move into the third vision. It's, it's the vision of, of a plumb line. Now, you may be thinking, what's a plumb line? Because that's what I thought when I read the text. What's a plumb line? Uh, you may be in carpentry or, or construction. I'm not. So I had to look up what a plumb line was. I'll tell you what it is in a minute. Let's read verses 7 through 9. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall and he, that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, Look, I am setting a plumb line uh, among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. So what is a plumb line? Well, in the picture behind me, you kind of see a picture of something, what would be like a plumb line. It's essentially a cord uh, with a lead weight on the bottom, and you uh, hang it on the top of a wall or a building, and it shows you what straight vertical is, right? Uh, okay, fair enough. So so what's going on? What's going on in this picture? God is giving this vision to Amos, and he uses the picture of a plumb line to, to say this. He says, I'm measuring the nation if the, if the nation was a building or a wall, I'm measuring the nation by the plumb line of my word, of my word, and I have found it to be leaning. I found the walls of the nation, the building of the nation, to not be straight. Therefore, what would he do? He would tear down the religious and political structures, right? He's going to destroy both the monarchy and their religious practices. And that leads us to the second lesson. The lesson of the plumb line, and it's this: God's word, God's word is the standard by which we will be judged as Christians. Just as the nation of Israel was judged by their uh, by their obedience or lack thereof to God's word, so those of us today in the church will be judged by God's word. So I want to ask you, friends, if you, if I were to take the plumb line of God's word and drop it from the wall of your life drop it from the wall of my life, how, how would we measure up? How would you measure up? Of course, we all fail. None of us are perfect. But I'm hoping we would be more straight uh, than leaning like the Tower of Pisa. In Second Corinthians 5, Paul, Paul tells us this. He affirms that on the day that we die, on the day that we see Jesus, as Christians, our life will be measured according to our obedience to his word. And so, friends, how would you measure up? How would I Measure up. We've seen three visions, right? And they're quick visions, they're short visions. And we, what we get next in the text is something unexpected. You would kind of expect, well, we've seen three visions, let's get another one. And we will have a fourth, but what we get starting in verse 10 and running through verse 17, the end of chapter 7, is what I would call a, a, a historical interlude. It's a story, right? Interjected in the visions. It's just a story. Sandwiched between visions 3 and 4 is a personal account of Amos and his encounter with the corrupt religious and political leaders. So So the the priest and the king, and it's a story of his encounter with them, which demonstrate and justify God's judgment on his people that had fallen so far astray. Let's read what happens here in verses 10 through 17. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel, so a town in the nation of Israel, and there's a priest by the name of Amaziah, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is... Raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The, the land cannot bear all of his words. This is what Amos is saying quote, Jeroboam will, will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer! Go back to the land of Judah. "'Earn your bread there, and don't do your, prophesying, do your prophesying there. "'Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel, "'because this is the king's sanctuary "'and the temple of the kingdom.'" Amos answered Amaziah, "'I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, "'but I was a shepherd, "'and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. "'But the Lord took me from tending the flock "'and said to me, "'Go, prophesy to my people Israel. "'Now then, hear the word of the Lord.'" You say, do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up, and you yourself will die in a pagan country, and Israel will surely go into exile, away from their native land. Wow. Wow. That's, that's strong. That's strong. So what's going on here? Quite simply, the people, God's people in the north, uh, they said, listen, we don't want to hear what you have to say because you're saying things we don't want to hear. And so we are rejecting the word of the Lord. Go, just go away. We, We don't want to hear you anymore. And Amos gives a strong prediction. Listen, what I have been saying, is indeed God's word, and here's what's going to happen to you because you have rejected the law of the Lord. And from this little story, we get our third lesson. And our third lesson is this. It's simple. Don't reject God's word. At the heart of what was going on at this story is the king and the priest, the people who are supposed to lead the people of God in obedience to the word of God, they said, we don't want to hear the word of God anymore. We don't want to hear what you have to say because we don't like it. Friends, friends, we must be very, very careful not to be like this. In our culture today, if we say things from the scriptures, it's not popular sometimes. Sometimes people don't want to hear What God has to say and sometimes we who are a part of the church we can we can do that as well we can say I don't want to hear of that because I don't like what it says I don't like what it says about me I don't like what it says about others I don't like what it says about reality and we have to be very careful to not reject God's word we can do this in a lot of ways we can read the scriptures and say well I know it says this but I just don't think it's right It's, it's it's just not true or we can look at a, at a story and say, I don't think that really happened. I just don't think it really happened. Or we can look at what the Bible, something the Bible says will happen, like, say, the return of Christ to the earth, and we can say, I just don't think it's going to happen. Or we can look at it and say, well, I think it's just a mistake. This is just a mistake here in the Bible. Or we can just choose to say, here, here's a popular one, and we have to be very careful with this. We can, we can choose to say, well, that's just, that's just cultural so, you know, when Paul writes this about that, you know, his culture led him to say that. And if he was writing in our culture, if he was writing in our day, well, then surely he wouldn't have said what he said there, right? That's, that's a very popular thing to say. And in doing so, we too can reject God's word. Friends, we must be careful to not do this. So, We pick up the story back in chapter 8. Because in chapter 8, we see the fourth vision, right? So we've seen the vision of the locusts. We've seen the vision of fire, right? We've seen the vision of the plumb line. And then in in chapter 8, we get a a long vision of of the ripe fruit. It's a vision of ripe fruit. So there's a picture behind me of of bananas that are uh, about to be rotten, I don't know about you. You know, some people are like, "Oh, that's perfect. That's how I want to eat them, right?" And you take it, and oh, it's sweeter. Some of you say, "Oh, that's rotten. You know, you need to use it for banana bread or something." We all have our differences of opinion as to when fruit goes bad. But but this is the image that Amos is going to use that God's going to give to Amos, and he's going to say, "Listen, uh, uh, I have been patient with the nation. I have been patiently waiting for my people to repent and to turn from me. But at some point," You have to eat the fruit. At some point, the fruit ripens, and at some point, you either have to eat it, or you freeze it, or you make banana bread, or you throw it away, right? At some point, it gets bad. And so he uses this image of the ripe fruit to say, I have waited, and I have waited, and I have pleaded, but now the bananas are ruined, right? Now the fruit is spoiled. And so chapter 8 is a vision of the coming consequences of the invasion of the the Assyrian army. And and I want to note, listen for it as we read, culminating in famine. Three ways, three kinds of famine, and the last may be the worst. He says this judgment is going to culminate in a lack of food, in a lack of water, And it's going to culminate in a lack of hearing a word from God. The worst is going to be that my people will not hear a word from me. Let's read chapter 8 in its entirety. We'll read it together, and then we'll apply it. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe. For my people Israel, I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn into wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land. We've seen this over and over again, the injustice that he describes. Verse 5 saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat? skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver, and the needy with a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. Notice what's going on. The people are saying, I'm tired of sitting in this worship service. I'm ready to go do life. I'm ready to go make money. And how are they making money? dishonestly, right? They were cheating. So they're sitting in church saying, when is this guy going to be done? Because real life has to happen. And Amos is saying, no, real life is worship of God. Verse 7, the Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything they have done. They will, they, will not the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn. The whole land will rise like the Nile, and it will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth and broad daylight, images of judgment. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all of your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like a mourning for an only son at the end of a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord. Well, I will, now hear hear this. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. What kind of famine? Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will, will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and the strong young men will faint because of thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, As surely as your God lives, Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, references to their idol worship, they will fall, never again to rise. So what's the lesson of this fourth vision? May I suggest to you it's it's this truth that God wants to get through to his people then and to his people now. And it's this dismissal of God's word leads to a deficit of God's word. When God's people reject, when we dismiss God's word, one of the things God may do is to say, I will not send my word. If we dismiss, there will be a deficit. And I fear that this is happening here today in the American church. I don't know if you keep up with uh, what's going on in Western Europe in particular, but if you know uh, anything about what's going on with the evangelical Christian church in Western Europe, you'll know that it's struggling because that culture as a whole, those cultures in that Western European area, they have gone completely secular. They've rejected Christianity and religion and they've gone, and they've gone completely secular and it's a very difficult place to be a missionary, very difficult place to have a church they dismissed the word of God, and there was a deficit in their land. And I fear that here in our land, as churches, choose to abandon the Bible as God in, God's inspired, his inerrant, his authoritative word, then what happens is the people in the pews experience a famine. What happens is the people in the pews experience a hunger for the word of God. There are churches, and I pray that it's never ours, where people sit and they want to hear a word from the Lord. They want to hear a a word from the Scriptures, and yet, you know what they get? They get 10-minute little mini-sermonettes Listen, I like to preach, and there's a reason why I preach 30 or 35 minutes, um, mostly because I can't be short. But uh, other than that, it's because I think it's important that we hear a word from the Lord, right? Not from me, but, but from the Scriptures. And in some churches, listen, they get a 10-minute sermonette. They get a reflection on a, a social event in the day. They get a, a little reflection about psychology or some kind of self-help thing instead of the word of the Lord. And, and the people may be sitting and saying, we're hungry for God's word. There's a quick story I want to share. Uh, We grew up going to a a church, and the church, uh, we knew the pastor. We were very good friends with the pastor. In fact, one of my best friends growing up was the pastor's son. So we have a relationship with his family to this day, my mom and dad, or have a good, healthy relationship with this guy, this husband and wife. He pastored a church for many years. I remember them telling a story about them going to visit a church that he was at in Austin, Texas, which didn't, is neither here nor there. Uh, but that's where they were living, and they went to visit and, and kind of see him in his church. And they kind of came back sheepishly, sheepishly to because to, I was like, hey, how, how was the church? How was visiting a pastor so-and-so, you know? What was it like? And uh, they were like, well, it was kind of weird. And I said, well, what do you mean it was kind of weird? And they said, well, it was uh, a... It was, it, was, it was a day emphasizing the blessing and baptism of pets. And I said, what? <laughs> and I thought they were kidding. And he's, well, she's like, no, that, that's kind of what, that's what they did. They, they, they took the day and they, it was all about the pets and they blessed them and they baptized them and they talked about how good pets are. I like pets, you know, nothing wrong with that. But I thought, they didn't hear the word of God <laughs> and they talked about pets and this just stunned me. And I wonder, that's maybe an extreme example, but I wonder I wonder if, if, if in this land, as we collectively dismiss God's word, I wonder if he might send a famine of his word. I pray that he doesn't, and I'll do everything I can to prevent that. So, vision number five. We move into the last chapter of the book of Amos. Amos chapter, chapter 9. The fifth vision is, is a vision of the, of the idolatrous temple in the land of Israel falling in judgment. It highlights the inevitability and the inescapability of the coming judgment upon God's people, which ultimately happened in the year 722 by the kingdom of Assyria. God says this is the judgment that's coming, yet... There's hope. I'm going to preserve a remnant of righteous people who really follow me. Let's read this, chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, "'Strike the top of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left I will kill with the sword. Not one will get away. None will escape.'" Though they dig to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Caramel, a mountain, uh, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by, by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, God's going to say, this is who I am. He touches the earth and it melts. And all who live in it mourn. The land rises like the Nile and sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and he sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and he pours them over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. Verse 7. Are not... You Israelites, the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord. Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftar, and the Arminians from Kerr? Surely the eyes of the Lord, of the sovereign Lord, are on the sinful kingdom. It will, I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet, and here's where there's hope, yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob declares the Lord. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All, who, all those who say disaster will not overtake us. So there's this last vision of God bringing the house down literally on his people. And here's a lesson for us from this little section, and it's a a very important one. It's this, God is able to discern the righteous and the unrighteous in the day of judgment. Did you notice the image of the sieve? What God is saying is, listen, I know how to judge rightly. I will shake the sieve, and and, and not one person, right, not one person who's uh, who's unrighteous will not be Will not be punished, but the righteous will make it through. It's an image that God, in the day of judgment, He knows how to judge between. He knows how to tell the sheep from the goats, right? He He knows how to accurately determine that. I'm reminded, and I won't read it, but there's a parable that Jesus tells in in Matthew 13, and it's called the parable of of the weeds. Uh, Some people say the the parable of the tares, right? And basically, he tells this story of what judgment will be like at the end of the day. He says, this is what the kingdom of God is going to be like. And he imagines a field. And in that field, there's both good seed and there's bad seed, right? There's wheat, which is good, and there's tares. And the point of the parable is this. In the kingdom age, before Christ comes, it's going to be scattered, There's going to be wheat, and there's going to be tares. And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. Just like it's hard to tell the difference as you're sitting in the pew here, whether you're born again or whether you're not. And we don't know. But God says, on the day that I come back, on the day that Jesus Christ returns, when the kingdom comes, listen, I'm going to separate the weeds from the tares, right? I'm going to to separate. I know how to judge. And so, friends, on that day, you may be sitting here. You may be faking it. You may not be a real Christian. You may have never been born again. And no one will ever know. But on that day, God will reveal whether you're a tare or whether you're a wheat. And it will be too late. And so friends, friends, today is the day that we turn in repentance to Jesus. Today is the day when we trust in him as our Savior. And we begin to walk with him as our Lord because God is able to discern the righteous from the unrighteous. So the book ends. The final section. Verses 11 through 15. It's short, but it's full of hope. It's full of hope. The first eight, nine and a half chapters have been God's message of his judgment on his people, but the last is sweet, and it's there for a reason. It's there for a reason. It's there to show that God is faithful to his promises, and he never abandons his people fully. It ends with a promise promise of restoration. Five promises— as it relates to politics, as it relates to purpose, as it relates to prosperity, as it relates to peace, and as it relates to permanence in the nation. He's going to promise these five things, that all of these things will be renewed. And they're all based on promises that he's already made to Abraham, to David, to the nation. And each of them will be ultimately fulfilled when Christ comes. So let's read this last section together. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter that is the promise of renewed politics. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. He says, listen, there's going to be a day when there's going to be from the line of David whom God had promised the kingship would come There's going to be a man from the line of David who is going to be king, and he's going to set up his kingdom, and it's going to be a kingdom that rules over all the nations. Be thinking in your mind, who might this be? Verse 13, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading the grapes. New wine will drip from the mountain and flow from all the hills. I will bring back my people Israel from exile. There's a promise that one day there will be a king and this king will be king over all the nations and it will be a time of prosperity like has never been known before. It will be a time of peace as we keep reading. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. It will be a day of peace. They will no longer be afraid of people ruining their cities and their vineyards and their gardens, and it will be a a day of permanence. Verse 15, I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land that I have given them. And here's our final lesson. As God was faithful to his promise of his people of old, here's the lesson for us today. God is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. To me, this is a stunning way to end because God's people had been utterly unfaithful to him. And yet God, because he had called them his chosen people, he was faithful to them. He was going to bring about his covenant promises to them even though they were unfaithful. 2 Timothy 2.13 tells us this as Christians. If we are faithless... He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Friends, let me end on this. Aren't you glad that when you sin and when I sin and when we stray away as people who are born-again Christians, that our salvation is not made forfeit and our adoption is not annulled? That when God says that our sins are paid for and that there's no condemnation, that he means it, right? And that we can trust in that and that he will never break that promise. To us, And so we come to an end of this book of Amos. I hope that you have enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. Next week, we're going to begin our Christmas series. uh, Three weeks focusing on Christ as our Prince of Peace. We see that in Isaiah 9-6, that Christ is called the Prince of Peace. And we're going to explore all the ways that Christ can bring peace into our lives and how Christ wants to bring peace into our relationships and ultimately peace into the world. Guys, have a, a wonderful Thanksgiving. Enjoy your family. Thank God for all that he's done. We'll see you Wednesday night at the, at the Eve service. Thanks for coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this series in Amos. It's been wonderful to hear what you care about in our lives. May we be ever vigilant to be obedient, to hear from your words, to never reject it, to never slight it, to never dismiss it, but to humbly submit ourselves to it for your glory and for our good and for our joy. We ask it in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. See you next week. Thanks.